Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, the focus of this episode is of immediate importance to all of us, and especially important right now in the season leading up to the presidential election. The topic is fixing healthcare, and our guest today is Dr. Vivian Lee, who is currently the president of Health Platforms at Verily, an Alphabet Google company. Dr. Lee recently published a book entitled The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies That Work for everyone. In today's interview, we're going to explore some of the critical problems and solutions Dr. Lee outlines in this really fantastic book. I, I, before we get there, I, I just want to share a little bit about her background, and I can't do it justice in the time we have, but Dr. Lee is a, a graduate of the Harvard Radcliffe College. She obtained a doctorate in medical engineering from Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar and then earned an MD with honors from the Harvard Medical School. She also along the way obtained an executive MBA at NYU Stern School of Business. She is a radiology specialist and a medical researcher who has authored over 200 peer-reviewed journals. She's been elected to the National Academy of Medicine and has garnered numerous awards for her contributions in research and medical science. Dr. Lee was the Dean and CEO of the University of Utah Health, one of the nation's leading hospital and academic medical centers. During her tenure there, she and her colleagues achieved numerous nationally recognized accomplishments around quality, safety, patient experience, growth, and entrepreneurial commercialization. In 2019, Dr. Lee was ranked number 11 among the most influential people in healthcare by Modern Healthcare. Dr. Lee, it is seriously my great honor to have you on the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. How are you today? Terrific. It's really wonderful to be with you. Thank you for that very kind introduction. I am super excited. As you know, I have read your book cover to cover and have poured over it a, a number of times. It really is impressive. I want to start with this question. You do a, a seriously amazing job of pulling together incredibly complex issues. Uh, the book is chock full of stories, statistics, as well as explanations. Why is it essential that people, the voting public, and not just healthcare professionals and policymakers, why is it important that people understand these very complex and complicated issues in healthcare today? You know, healthcare is one of these issues that is so important to us personally, our own health, the health of our families. And yet I think many of us feel that it is too complicated. It's too difficult to understand. And so it feels like maybe an intractable problem. Uh, and to some, maybe it doesn't even feel like necessarily our problem that we have to solve. Like one of the one of the facts that I discovered as I was writing the book was the fact that many of us feel like we don't even pay for healthcare because our insurance covers healthcare, right? So maybe we go in and pay a few dollars copay and we feel like, well, healthcare, that's somebody else's problem. Actually, it turns out we each pay for healthcare three times over. So if we're fortunate enough to have our employer cover our healthcare, we still have our co-pays and out-of-pocket payments, and those are rising. We now, individuals, as, as employees, we cover about a third of our healthcare costs just through those out-of-pocket payments. We pay through our taxes. And then we have all been paying over the last 50 to 60 years uh, in the form of lower wages. We 
just have not seen wage growth on average in this country because most of that money has gone to pay for health care. So health care is everyone's problem in this country. And what I really set out to do in the long fix was to try to make it understandable, try to make it clear to most people, whether you're in healthcare or not, why our healthcare system right now is so expensive and yet not delivering what it ought to, so that people can have an informed opinion about, about healthcare and about what needs to change and act in their own interest as well as vote in their own interest. Now that's, that's really so important. I couldn't agree with you more. In the first two or three chapters of the book, you talk a lot about healthcare costs, prices, and patient bills. And the gestalt one comes away with is that the entire system is set up uh, almost like it's conspiring to keep costs up and charges up as much as possible. And the complexity and some of the gaming of this system, it, it almost requires a pH level education to understand. Could you give us some examples of some of the, the problems in, in the way that charges are produced, that the, the pricing and the billing crisis in healthcare today? Sure. The, the fundamental problem, I think, in, in healthcare is the way in which we are paying for it. The business model of healthcare is really fundamentally flawed. It's a fee-for-service model, meaning we get paid or we pay doctors and hospitals and other healthcare providers and drug companies and everybody in healthcare for doing things to us. We don't really pay them for better health. And as a result of that incentive system, as one of one of the people that I interviewed for the book, Cece Connolly was a former journalist, and she said, it's as if you would pay me for every word that I would write, as opposed to the quality of the article. You'd get much longer articles, but you wouldn't necessarily get better articles. That's sort of how we've set up our healthcare system. We've set it up so that uh, doctors are incentivized to do as many procedures as possible, imaging studies. Um, to prescribe very expensive medications, regardless of whether they actually make you better. And so what happens in the system is you have health systems that, I mean, if anybody were incentivized that way, they would try to do more, even if even if individually we're not necessarily thinking about overdiagnosing or overtreating. The economics are such that you were incentivized to do so. And so the counterbalance to that is the insurance company or the other payers try to keep costs down by denying payment or by putting in barriers like prior authorization, which just simply means if you as a physician want to order an MRI test or an expensive medication, the insurance company makes you jump over a lot of hoops, fill out a lot of paperwork in order to get that study done. And so back and forth, you have what I call a trillion dollar tug of war between the health systems that are incentivized just to do, 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 treat, 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 and the payers who are trying to really stop that from happening, and so they deny, deny, deny. And in the middle of it is the patient, because at the end of the day, when the payers and the providers can't resolve those differences, that's how we end up with surprise bills or balance bills, and the patients get stuck. And, and this kind of system ends up increasing costs just every, you know, the, the costs just continue to rise. And it's gotten to the point now where, as you know, uh, healthcare is consuming almost one-fifth of the U.S. economy, and that's more than double most of our peers in Europe, Canada, Japan, Australia, for example. And yet our health outcomes are much worse than all of them. The, the average baby born today in the U.S. will live four, five, or even six years 
less than its counterpart than a baby born in, say, Italy or in Germany or in Israel or Japan. And so, and, and you know, of course, about 10% of Americans have no health insurance whatsoever. So we are paying way too much and achieving way too little. And it's really because our business model is so flawed. In the book, you also talk about the burden that, that this sort of tug of war places on the individual physicians and providers who are practicing each and every day, uh, spending so much of their time having to attend to prices and, and billing and coding and documentation instead of uh, spending time actually listening and talking and diagnosing and treating their patients. One of the really surprising aspects uh, of this book is just how unhappy almost everybody is with the current system. Uh, you, you'd imagine when you think, well, physicians, they must be doing well, they must be financially uh, benefiting from this model, and so they must all be happy. Well, in fact, the, the studies show that about 40, 45, 50% of all physicians are burned out. And that's based on a, a number of uh, emotional and psychological measures that are performed. And that's huge. That, that's really unbelievable. And in large part, as you say, it's because of these administrative burdens. It, it's a part of, it's being kind of like a cog in a wheel, you sort of feel, or maybe a hamster in that hamster wheel kind of mindset. Uh, the studies are showing that, you know, for every hour that you spend with a patient, you spend two hours on paperwork. Uh, there was a study actually out of Duke that showed that just billing and coding consumed enormous resources. So in order to collect money again, you know, from the insurers and other payers, uh, physicians were on average spending for, for a primary care doctor, just a regular primary care doctor, the costs of billing and coding were about $99,000 per year. So that that time is time that they should be spending with the patient. They should be facing the patient, talking to the patient, listening to the patient, and instead they're down to eight-minute visits on average so that they have enough time, so, so that first of all, they can generate enough revenue for their clinics and their hospitals and so on. And second of all, uh, so that they can have time to do all the paperwork and and administrative work. So I think we've kind of created a scenario where uh, very few of the constituents are happy. And actually, I talk about that, really, that's sort of how the book is structured, because I talk about how this isn't really serving patients in the communities, talk about how it's not really serving doctors and, and hospitals, even. Um, it's not particularly serving insurance companies well. Insurance companies also do not have huge margins or huge profits, as you might imagine, because they're just in this endless tug of war. So both hospitals and health systems on average have pretty low margins compared to most other industries. Uh, and it's certainly not serving the government well, uh, our largest payer. Yeah. So I think before we get to payment, I guess my question to you is, to your point, if the system is not serving any stakeholder and, and everyone's suffering, and most importantly, you know, patients and, and the public are suffering, as a result of all this, uh, both in terms of health care, health care outcomes, costs of care, why is the system so hard to change? Why is it so intractable? Any system that right now is employing or consuming, let's say, one-fifth of the U.S. economy and, and employing vast numbers of people in the status quo is going to be difficult to change. I think that is really one of the, one of the lessons from COVID-19 has been just um, how challenging our healthcare system really is and how, it, how the lack of 
of uh, resilience actually in our healthcare system and its inability to deliver in public health and to withstand the COVID crisis, you know, with so many hospitals closing down, so many doctors and even nurses being furloughed. Um, I think we all now see that it does need to change and this crisis, I think, may accelerate some of that change. But having having so many people whose livelihoods depend on the status quo, I think makes it particularly hard to change. Also, I think uh, the complexity. As I said, you know, one of the goals that I had for writing this book was to try to make it simple, to try to, to bring people under the tent, because I think many of us who have been in healthcare for a long time do have a pretty clear sense of where it needs to go. And that shared understanding is bipartisan, actually. But what, what's missing is the, the ability to share that understanding and share those insights in a clear and understandable way with the general public. Um, you, you, you see many people who are out marching about global warming or about Black Lives Matters and social injustice, and people understand what the issues are and they know the position that they hold. Uh, I think very few people outside of healthcare really understand healthcare enough to hold very firm positions beyond, beyond kind of a superficial level. I mean, they're, they're obviously people do hold positions about certain issues, but in terms of how to fix our overall healthcare system, um, I think it is very complicated. And so one of my goals was to try to make it just a little bit less complicated. Yeah, I, I would say I, I completely agree with you. And thank you for, for those responses. It really makes it understandable how challenging it is to move the healthcare industry, given its size, how many people depend on it for their livelihood, as well as the complexity. And I would say even those of us in healthcare, it is so complicated that unless you're schooled in it, or as, as yourself had to deal with it as an executive for many, many years, it's really hard to understand. And between the economics and the regulations, et cetera, you know, one of the issues which you talk about in the book, which you mentioned is pretty significant, is the costs of medications and the, the amount that individuals pay for medications and just overall the pharmaceutical spending costs uh, for the U.S. And so I guess my question is, what recommendations do you have? And, and maybe just if you could say something about how significant an issue that is and what recommendations do you have for lowering those costs? Yeah, medication, the rising cost of medications is really an interesting and probably one of the most complicated issues in this country because there's not a clear, you know, there's not a clear good guy, bad guy. It's, it's, it's not as straightforward as people like to paint it. Uh, we, we are very fortunate to have so much innovation in the pharmaceutical industry in the U.S. or around the world and to benefit from that innovation in the U.S. So one of the positive uh, aspects of the way in which we manage uh, pharmaceuticals and, and their pricing in the U.S. is that the, that the folks in, in this country have the earliest access to the widest range of medications and new medical devices. So that's a huge, huge plus. And so much of that innovation does take place in this country. So we also have access to those drugs early on in the form of clinical trials. And it, of course, spurs on a lot of biomedical research and science, which benefits us in many, many ways. So there are many pluses uh, to uh, the way in which our pharmaceutical system works in this country. But it has really driven the model of pricing is what I call whatever the market will bear which is essentially, you know, the, there really are very few constraints to drug pricing in the U.S. And as science 
continues to accelerate and we're able to do CAR T therapy, you know, we're able to in invent new kinds of approaches to um, therapies that we never would have imagined before uh, taking somebody's cells and then modifying them and then injecting them back and having them, you know, fight against cancer or fight against various diseases. It, it's just phenomenal science. But the price tag is is almost equally phenomenally high. Uh, and I think that's really the challenge that we're facing is that as the science gets better and better and we're able to really treat and even cure people that we never would have imagined curing, and in some cases that cure requires a lifetime of treatment, the costs uh, become almost unimaginably high. And so I, I do think we have to really think very carefully. I have a few different recommendations um, in that chapter, but maybe the one I think that I would like to just share in the context of thinking about how do we really hold ourselves responsible across the entire healthcare industry to delivering value, to being able to say, yes, we are definitely improving health outcomes at a reasonable cost. And the way in which the pharmaceutical industry has been held to that standard in other countries has been uh, through the measurement of these cost effectiveness or cost utility uh, metrics. And they're essentially how much does it cost to extend life for an average person on this medication for say a year. And so there are dollar amounts that are put to that and you there's kind of a, a set of benchmarks, I guess, for what your standard heart drugs might cost for, per dollar of your life extended or other kinds of medications. And uh, other countries have used those standards to guide pharmaceutical companies as to what they feel a reasonable price would be. And it's easier for them because they have um, centralized health system like a national health service in the UK does most of the price setting and purchasing for the country. And so they're able to negotiate um, on that basis. In my view, I think the US could benefit from a lot more transparency about the cost effectiveness of drugs. I think it would be very helpful. Maybe not so much for, for each of us individually as patients to know because we're not experts necessarily about different drugs. But when it comes to hospitals or the pharmacists who help make these kinds of decisions in healthcare systems or for health insurance plans, I think it's very would be very helpful for them to be able to have a lot more insight and access to the data about just how effective are these drugs, what are the costs of the adverse or side effects that they might have, and just how, how much do they really extend life or improve the quality of life, and to quantify them in those standard ways that are used in the scientific community, um, very similar to how it's done elsewhere. We don't do that very much in this country. In fact, in some cases, some of that work has even been restricted, which I think is really kind of, it's very difficult to justify. I think if we're going to if we're going to take a market approach to healthcare, then I think we should be pretty transparent about some of that data and those numbers. Yeah, you know, and I just want to underscore that this data and this approach would not be used to prevent medications. It would really be used to compare medications, choosing one that has more uh, effectiveness in terms of outcomes than another one, allowing purchasers to make some choice based on data. That's right. That's right. And, and I should just say that, that, that we do have one, um, Peter Bach, who is a, a physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering, actually has a website. Um, I can't remember the name of the website, but Peter Bach, B-A-C-H, if you search him, 
And he actually compares something like 50 different cancer drugs exactly in this way. He just has the little chart and you can pull it up and you can sort of see what their overall cost effectiveness is. Exactly like you say, it's not saying somebody can or cannot have this drug, but it's just sharing with you across all these drugs that are used for this kind of cancer or that kind of cancer, um, just how cost effective are they and compares them side by side. That That's the kind of tool I'm talking about. Right. And I, and I just wanted to point that out because people listening to this might not understand the way that this approach is being used in other countries. It's not to prevent, uh, but it's actually to make a better choice. Is that the abacus? That's right. The drug abacus. Exactly right. Drug abacus. That's the site where people could actually go and to your point, uh, see how one cancer drug compares to another in terms of its efficacy and impact on life and therefore its cost effectiveness in that regard. You know, what shocked me, I'd known this before, but forgotten, I don't know how many people are aware of this, that Medicare, uh, CMS, can't actually do this, right? It's prevented from uh, looking at the uh, comparative effectiveness, uh, cost effectiveness of different medications, which is just mind-blowing to me that the, the largest payer in our country cannot do that. Is that right? That's right. Actually, it's even, it's even more shocking than that. The largest payer in our country is not allowed to negotiate on drug prices. So on behalf of, so as one of the largest payers in the country, uh, particularly say in Medicare for seniors, Medicare is not allowed to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies for the prices of those drugs that they're purchasing on behalf of seniors in this country. They are required in six classes of drugs, which include basically most of the medications, most of the most common medications and cancer drugs and HIV drugs, for example, as well. Um, they are required to have all drugs, include all drugs in their formulary, so they can't exclude any drug, even if it's priced um, outside of what they think might be reasonable. And they're not allowed to negotiate on drug pricing. That's something that has been debated quite a lot uh, recently in Congress. It's come up again. And I, th I think it's something that's really difficult to justify or defend. And you actually have really great counterexamples. So I, I talk about this, you know, one of my favorite chapters in the book is where when I start talking about payers, I have a chapter about employers as payers of healthcare. And then in, in the government chapter, I actually talk about uh, the military health system and a little bit about the VA. And both of those are government run healthcare. The government actually runs the hospitals and the clinics as well as through, you know, as providing benefits, they're the, the payer uh, of the healthcare as well. And both the military and the VA are allowed to negotiate on drug pricing, unlike Medicare. So it's not as if it's a government-wide issue. It's actually just specific to Medicare. And when they're allowed to negotiate, of course, they're able to negotiate better prices. So they have, have better rates, military medicine and military health system and the VA. That chapter uh, around the pharmaceutical spending was really enlightening and also, I, I think, creates some opportunity for savings. You know, you mentioned employer-based health care a moment ago, and in Chapter 10, you spend some time talking about employer-based health care, which pays, like you say, about 30 to 40 percent of all health care in the U.S., uh, uh, somewhere between 70 to 90 percent of all uh, health care costs for employees and their dependents are paid for by employers. You have this wonderful line. I'm going to quote you here. You wrote, we're paying for today's healthcare with tomorrow's retirement money. So what don't those of us who have employer-sponsored health insurance understand about the impact of healthcare costs on our actual true wage earnings and our earning power? 
oh, it, it's motivating as long as you don't get too depressed when you when you look at the numbers because what you see is that the healthcare costs, when we talk about it as a nation, oh, these healthcare costs are so high, who's bearing them? We are each individually bearing those healthcare costs. Even, but it's invisible to us. That, that's what's so insidious about this because, well, first of all, even in the past, I mean, the good old days, I suppose, um, when our employers covered our, our healthcare, we really had very little in the way of copays, maybe $5 here, $10 there. And nowadays we have the initial out of pockets. We have, many of us have very high deductibles. So it'd be, we, we pay the first thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars uh, of the healthcare bills before insurance even kicks in. And then if we're unfortunate enough to actually use a lot of healthcare, uh, be hospitalized for an extended period of time, for example, or a family member, um, then we end up paying a significant percentage of that healthcare bill as well. That's the coinsurance part. So there are deductibles, there are co-pays, there's coinsurance. And at the end of the day, we right now are spending on average about 30% of, of the overall bill that an employer used to pay, we are now to actually paying. But what you're referring to is even more problematic, which is the fact that it's actually coming out of our earnings. So if you look at this country over the last 60 years, you know, our economy has grown and over the last, um, our GDP has grown, but our wages have not grown. Our wages, the average person in this country over the last 50 to 60 years has essentially seen pretty flat wages. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that, the big gap between what we ought to be getting, what, what let's say our employers have been earning in increased revenue because the businesses have been growing and the economy has been getting better for 50 and 60 years. The Delta has all gone to healthcare. And not only has that gone to pay for our healthcare, it's even dipping into, as you alluded to, our retirement money. So the amount of money that our employers used to put in our retirement funds has actually decreased significantly, especially in the last five to 10 years. And that, again, has gone to pay for our rising health care bills. So it's absolutely imperative right now that we get on top of this, that we actually tackle rising health care costs, start getting those health care costs down because really our future is depending on it now. You bring so much clarity to some of these very, very complicated problems and some you know, very, very simple but elegant solutions uh, and directions to go into. The thing about the employer-sponsored uh, healthcare too is it's everyone you know, pays a similar amount. So it, you know, whether you're a top earner in an organization or a low earner, it differentially, uh, from my understanding, really impacts lower earners in corporations across the country. And it really breaks your heart. Uh, as you say, organizations are growing and increasing revenue, and yet the folks that are making them grow are not reaping the benefits. It's insidious because you don't see it happening, right? That's right. You don't see it happening. And it is leading to the widening gap, you know, in our society, uh, which we were actually seeing really apparent right now in the, in the COVID crisis, that those who need health care the most are those who least can afford it. So and the, the good side of this or what I was trying to uh, what I was trying to achieve in the book on, in this particular section is to say, you know what, employers acting on behalf of their employees actually can change can change the situation. They have a lot of market power. And when they decide to use that power, as I, I talk about a, a coalition of employers in Seattle 
um, Costco, Nordstrom, Starbucks, for example. And when they decided to get together and say, whoa, these healthcare costs are going up way too much. On behalf of all of our employees, it's time that we push back a little bit and we start demanding that the health systems that serve our employees meet certain performance specs, just like any suppliers that we work with. You guys are the suppliers of healthcare for our employees, and we're going to apply those same kind of high standards to you. You need to give us same-day care. You need to get our employees back to work early and healthy. You need to be consistent in your pricing and transparent in your pricing. Um, and you need to only do what works. You know, Stop recommending stuff that doesn't work. We don't need unnecessary back surgeries when somebody just needs rest and a little physical therapy. When they pushed back, those employers put back, pushed back, it was incredibly effective uh, because their business was very important to the health system. And that the health system leaders that I interviewed were actually quite pleased by the impact of that change on their own health system and made their system better. And it made them one of the centers of excellence that Walmart and Lowe's and all these other national employers started sending their employees to. So it, it can become a win-win. We just need to overcome a little bit of an activation energy on the part of the employers. But one of the things that I tried to do in the book was to, to list out, you know, here, step by step, this is really what you need to be thinking about um, because there's some really great examples out there to follow, really great examples and, and really great time to make that change now um, as, you know, we're, we're really going into a contracting economy. Really important to keep health care for our employees, you know. Yeah. To me, it seems like, uh, and I want to ask you this question, it seems like the employers, employer coalitions, like you say, there's there's a lot of uh, market power there, purchasing power to influence the uh, the way that healthcare is paid for. And it seems to me this you're tugging at or going back to this theme that you mentioned in your book, which is this need to shift from a fee-for-service payment model. Uh, in your book, I think you call it... Uh, pay for doing or uh, something like that. And, and we need to shift from that to really paying for value, paying for outcomes. How important on a scale to one to 10, how critical, how central is that one issue to really the long fix? I think it's a 10 or maybe in spinal tap terms, yeah, 12. It's a 10 on 10. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say that because it really comes across in your book. You keep on coming back to it and mentioning it. And so why is that, like you say, a 12 out of 10 in, in terms of importance, the shift from this fee-for-service, payment for action, payment for doing, to something else, to this payment for value? Why is it so central? Well, we have an, a really unique healthcare system in this country in that we decided early on that healthcare was not going to be a fully government-provided benefit. We decided that we wanted a mix of the government managing healthcare for some, seniors, the disabled, poor, veterans, for example, Native American, certain groups, but essentially the private sector to cover healthcare for everyone else. And we believe strongly in this country in the effects of capitalism, of market power, to drive value, to drive innovation. That's kind of how we've modeled our healthcare system. Um, I don't know that all of us would embrace this mixed model if we were to do it all again, uh, truthfully. But if we accept the model the way it is now, that it is a mixture of a private, uh, a private market-driven, um, basically business, large, large business, um, then I think it needs to function effectively in that way. And the fee-for-service approach to the business 
only incentivize, incentivizes overtreatment and overuse as we've seen now. And it's completely unsustainable and it's not, not only not improving the health of Americans, but it's not really addressing, I think, what I admire so much about the military health system, which is our society's readiness to perform, our resilience in the face of challenges like COVID, for example, or, or other challenges that we are going to be facing um, going forward. So it's not a healthcare system that really serves us well now. And instead, if we can move to a model, and there are many great examples in the country now, where it is what we're describing a paying for value system can work, then we can actually start to leverage many of those forces of capitalism, really the drive to innovation, what the technology sector or big data and analytics, for example, machine learning, AI, all of those incredible capabilities that we have that can drive better health as well as lower the cost of care and increase access. We can focus those industries in the right direction instead of fee-for-service focusing on generating better outcomes, um, then I think we have enormous potential for increasing increasing the pace of change and really accelerating towards the long fix, you know, really accelerating towards a much brighter future for healthcare in this country. It doesn't seem to me that people understand the gravity of and sort of the fragility that the fee-for-service system introduces into our healthcare uh, system. And again, to your point, COVID-19, the pandemic, really demonstrated that, um, how fragile our system was in large part because it's built on this fee-for-service model as opposed to a value-based model. I really appreciate you discussing that throughout the book and weaving that theme throughout. You talk about another big theme, which has uh, a lot of uh, political overlay to it, which is uh, insurance coverage. You make some recommendations about that as well. Well, one of the big debates that we're having in this country, or we have been in the last uh, in the last few years, and especially rolling up into the this coming election, for example, has been the debate about um, universal coverage and Medicare for all, for example. And one of the things I try to do is I try to break down that debate into Medicare and for all divide up that phrase into two parts. And starting with the for all, which I take to mean universal coverage, I take that to mean health care for all, um, I think that the data are very clear that people who have access to health care through health insurance do better. And I cite some of the literature out there. There was, a, in my mind, a really very interesting a set of experiments that were done in three states preceding the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion. Before that, maybe 10 years before that, in three states, I think New York, Maine, and Arizona, those three states, very different states, expanded Medicaid, again, years before the Affordable Care Act. And uh, in a paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, looked at the effects of expanding Medicaid in those states and showed significant reductions in mortality. Just fewer people died and people uh, reported um, much better health. It's not surprising. Those of us who are in healthcare know that people who have access, particularly to primary care, can um, maintain their blood sugars if they're diabetic or their blood pressures, keep their blood pressures down if they have hypertension 
they're just so much better off than coming into the hospital with a heart attack or a stroke that's debilitating for years or suffering all the consequences of diabetes with amputations and eye disease and kidney disease. Most of us in healthcare, we, we all really know that. And so I think the data are pretty clear that universal coverage, that providing healthcare, access to healthcare for all is not only uh, the right thing to do, but it's also um, in the long run leads to better health and less, uh, let's say, more productive lives for people. I think the challenging part in the whole debate is really who should be paying for that and how should that system be implemented in our country. And that's where this debate about Medicare, I think, is is really worth discussing. Uh, in my, my view right now is that Medicare is primarily paying in a fee-for-service way. We already discussed the fact that Medicare is not able to negotiate on drug pricing. So rising drug costs are a huge, huge uh, burden on Medicare. Our Medicare funds are actually slated to run out in just a few years. So we're, we're really hitting an impending crisis with Medicare um, as it stands. So I think there are a lot of challenges to expanding Medicare to cover everyone who's uninsured now and cover everyone across the entire country uh, without first addressing what Medicare is actually paying for. And that's what brings me back to this idea that we really need to make sure that we are paying for health outcomes and not just paying for action before we expand those services to, to all the Americans who need it. So I think that there are other models uh, that I also allude to. I uh, try to compare a few different systems in Europe, uh, for example, in Canada. And uh, I think there are other ways to getting to health coverage for everyone. Uh, but I think that those are those are some of the issues that I think are really worthy of debate. Yeah, that's so helpful. And I Medicare for all without some sort of change in the payment model, as you go back to that issue, paying for for outcomes and value, it makes sense. It's actually the only reasonable way to think about it. And one last question. It's January 20th, 2021. There's a president and vice president. They're sitting in the Oval Office and you've been called in to spend a few minutes with them. What recommendations are you going to make regarding the strategies and policies we should be pursuing to transform healthcare delivery in the U.S.? Oh, in, in two minutes or less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, 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 well okay. Dr. Lee Potus is busy, right? <laughs> Potus is busy, right. Okay, I got it. I got it. We got to focus. Okay, so I guess I would start with maybe in the interest of time, three principles. And then I think within each of those principles, um, I do have recommendations. As you've mentioned in the book, I have actually some, some specific recommendations, but I think the principles are very helpful. I think, first of all, I think we need to really recognize that healthcare is a problem with bipartisan solutions, that the, that the healthcare community and the healthcare policy community is, is really, I think, uh, remarkably uh, united in the belief that we need to improve access to healthcare for people and that we need to improve quality and outcomes and reduce costs of care. I think we're all united in that. I, I think we're also united in the fact that principle number two is we absolutely need to drive to a different model of healthcare where we really value better outcomes and lower costs and better access as opposed to a fee-for-service model. And that move to a value model across all of healthcare, not only the way in which hospitals are paid, but the way in which we think of every constituent 
in every constituency in healthcare, whether it's the pharmaceutical industry, the medical device industry, or my own industry now, digital health and technology. Um, I think we need to really push for value-driven care, and we need to set a deadline. We need to set a deadline. We need to be very firm and clear about that to the market. And I think the third principle is that we need to view health as a strategic imperative for the country. It's really about readiness of our society. It's about in, ensuring that all people in this country are able to be productive uh, to their maximum abilities and that we are seeing in COVID that ever more imperative that health is, is critical to the future of this country in so many ways. And so it has to be a top priority. And uh, I would encourage POTUS and V POTUS to prioritize healthcare as the signature, the signature advance of their administration in this country is to finally get our healthcare system uh, improved. Thank you for that. That was outstanding. Dr. Lee, I just want to thank you so much. And to the folks who are listening, I have been uh, reading and living with this book uh, for the past couple of weeks, The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies That Work for Everyone. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Dr. Lee really breaks down these issues into bite-sized pieces and then explains what the different stakeholders, including patients and providers and payers and policymakers and hospitals, uh, what they can do with each one of these specific areas or problems. So again, Dr. Lee, it's such a pleasure. I could listen to you and ask you questions literally for the next uh, few hours. You're brilliant. Your book is brilliant. I'd love to be able to uh, visit with you again sometime in the next few months. Oh, I'd really look forward to that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a good time talking with you. Every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking the listeners out there who are actually doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who are taking care of patients. I and we truly appreciate you for what you do. And we recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our societies. My friends and colleagues, please take care of yourself. Please be safe. As always, uh, I hope you've benefited from this podcast as much as I have. Uh, my goal is to provide you with useful information as well as encouragement and inspiration and to serve as a catalyst for reframing and transforming our healthcare system. And again, I think Dr. Lee's book goes uh, such a long way to moving us forward. This is Zev Neuwirth on creating a new healthcare. Until next time, be safe and be well. <laughs>